0: Last Sunday we finished a series in the book of Isaiah where we were looking at key selected passages throughout that book. For the next few weeks, for the remainder of the summer, um, we're simply going to allow whoever is speaking simply to share whatever they feel God has laid upon their heart. And so this morning I want to focus on a few verses from the Gospel of Luke and from chapter 7. And by way of introduction, um, you'll see some pictures on the screen. Uh, Coal Island is a wee town in County Tyrone um, in the middle of Northern Ireland. And for those of you who understand Irish politics, it would be a Republican stronghold. And uh, this was a photograph taken just a couple of years ago. of the new IRA or the real IRA, or the continuity IRA, depending on what you call them, parading through the town, and it brought back memories when I saw it from you 'll not believe this from forty years ago, whenever I was leading a youth evangelism team uh, in a little Baptist church called Lesnelear, which is way out in the country maybe six or seven miles away from this little town. And uh, one day I said to the young people on the team, do you know, I think we'll go into Coal Island and do some door-to-door evangelism. And like, they were scared out of their wits. And the leaders of the church were even more hesitant about allowing us to do so. But uh, I said, well, look, let's just go for it, you know. Just people are people wherever they are. And... Uh, For young Ulster Protestants, largely from a middle-class background, got into a little town where every other house was flying an Irish tricolor. And almost every house was flying a black flag because it was during the time of the IRA hunger strikes. They were a little bit nervous. But I thought, let's go for it. You know, I was young and brash and thought, let's just... So anyway, um, everything went fine, Uh, sort of, Um, until we knocked on one door where a lady opened the door. And I'm not going to tell you her story, but to cut a long story short, her husband had been murdered by the IRA. And whenever we arrived at her door, she wanted very legitimately to know who we were. Because I was standing at her front door, along with a younger girl, and uh, before I could even introduce who I was, um, she said, I know who you are. And I thought, you know, I've never even been in Coal Island before. She doesn't have a scuba. She says, I've seen you on television. And she thought I was one of the Shinners. That's this colloquial name for people that support Shin Féin—struggling. guy. All right. And uh, she says, "I've seen you on television." Um, and uh, because her husband had been killed, and she wasn't really very keen on welcoming me into the house, and I, I said, "Look, no," I said, "We're from the the, the, the Baptist Church in in and she really didn't seem to believe me. I, "I know who you are. I've seen you," she said. And it wasn't until many years later I realized why she expressed some doubts, because I found this photograph of me in Coal Island 40 years ago, and I thought, no wonder she thought, you you're not really a Baptist pastor, you actually look more like, <laughs> don't you like it? Do you think I've changed that much? I used to love that wee coat. Do you know, I had that mustache from sixth year in grammar school. I do have some signed copies that I'll give to you after the service. But it's a classic photograph. And I was thinking to myself, here's me standing at the door trying to explain to this woman that, like, I'm a trainee minister from the Baptist church a few miles away, and her thinking, likely story. And basically she was saying, you're really not what I expected. And in a sense, this provides the whole context for the passage we're looking at in Luke chapter 7, because it's about John the Baptist and Jesus And whenever Jesus came on the scene, John was a little bit like the woman in the house. He was scratching his head and thinking, you know, Jesus isn't quite what I expected. He isn't actually the sort of person I thought he would be. And actually what he's telling people isn't exactly the sort of line that I thought he would take. So, let's read some of the opening verses from Luke 7 and verse 18. John's disciples told him, told John, about all these things, all the things that were happening, what Jesus was doing, etc., etc. Even though John was in prison, some of his disciples still had access to him. So, calling two of them, he, that is John, sent them to the Lord, that is Jesus, to ask, Jesus, are you the one? Who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? You see, John in prison, what he had heard, the reports that had been brought back to him, even though he was the forerunner of Jesus, even though he was the one who was saying, come on, get ready, the Messiah is coming. Whenever the Messiah came, John thought, is he really the one? He's not quite what I expected. So when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one? Are you really the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus was curing many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, yeah, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind do receive sight. And the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. That last verse simply means Jesus was concerned that John wouldn't end up having mega doubts and almost fall away from his trust in God. Because he didn't really understand who Jesus was. So Jesus was concerned that John got the right message and did understand that he was indeed the Christ. And so I want to begin this morning, firstly, to encourage you to recognize that he, as portrayed in the Gospels, is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, John needed reassurance for all sorts of reasons. I I suppose John came largely with a message of of judgment. And so, for example, in Luke's Gospel and chapter 3, John is preaching, and people come out into the desert to hear him preaching. And this wasn't just like to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious hypocrites he was talking. This was people who were genuinely interested in hearing what John had to say. And he turns to them and said, You brood of vipers. You need to flee from the wrath to come. It wasn't a very endearing way to engage with his audience. He was saying to these people who were coming to hear this prophetic voice, you're like a bunch of snakes. When they sense there's a fire coming, they slither out of their holes and scamper across the desert. And he says to the crowd, that's what you're like. You're like snakes slithering out of the holes and going away across the desert. Flee from the come." And he goes on in the same sort of language to describe the fact that God's judgment would be at their door unless they acknowledged who the Messiah was. And I suppose whenever Jesus arrived, by this time, John was now in prison. And uh, he obviously was frightened. We know that eventually he actually literally lost his head. And uh, things perhaps weren't panning out as perhaps he had anticipated. He had said that Jesus in the end would increase and he would gradually fade into the background. But perhaps there was some lingering expectation that even though Jesus would take center stage, that he at least would have some part to play in the ushering in of God's kingdom. But as it is, he's lying in prison. And then whenever his disciples come back and tell them about the sort of things that Jesus is saying, he's scratching his head. So earlier in this passage in John 7 and right into John 6, Jesus is telling people to, to love their enemies. It's difficult to imagine John the Baptist saying that. Maybe he would have. But whenever Jesus was saying, look, love your enemies, love even those people that have put John into prison, it didn't seem to sit particularly well, perhaps. Or the centurion who came to Jesus, he's just told us that story. He was one of the Roman hierarchy. And even though the Bible makes it clear he was a good man, from John's perspective, he nevertheless represented the oppressors. Surely, whenever the Christ came he was going to get rid of the Roman authorities. He would come in power and majesty and get rid of all those who stood against the will and purposes of God. But here's Jesus going out of his way to show compassion to the centurion by healing his much-loved servant. And Then immediately after this story about Jesus and John the Baptist, what does Jesus do? he ends up receiving worship from a prostitute, from a woman with a notorious reputation in the town. And John must be sitting in prison thinking, Jesus, you've got the balance wrong here. You know, you really ought to be bringing down the judgment of God upon this sinful generation. But Jesus doesn't seem to do that. I suspect whenever we're in prison, whatever our prison is, whenever we're in a place where we feel hard done by by God, there are sometimes we respond in exactly the same way. God, if you are this great God who is full of power and majesty, why don't you get me out of this hellhole? Why don't you do something about it? If you really are who you say you are, why am I who have tried to serve you all my life languishing in this prison? It's equivalent for me today. And we're living in this crazy world as Anne's just been praying, in a nation that doesn't know where it's going, where week after week after week we get more and more discouraged and downcast as evil seems to triumph. Like, what a messed up country we're living in. What a messed up nation we're living in. And that's not just politically. In every part of our life, we just think, like, life's crazy at the moment. Sin seems to abound in every hand. So, what should be our message? And that's really what John was saying. Jesus, why don't you really call a spade a spade? Why don't you really bring the judgment of God down upon this people? But Jesus seems to come with a very different emphasis. In the message of Jesus, grace seems to have priority over judgment. And yet at the same time, Jesus is quoting from the book of Isaiah, from the very passage that Andrew preached on two Sundays ago from Isaiah 61. And he uses this to determine what ultimately would be his priority during his earthly ministry. So you remember two weeks ago, Andrew reading from Isaiah 61, and then using that in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus goes into the synagogue, and, as was his custom, and he picks up the scroll... And he reads from Isaiah 61. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of the salvation of God. Jesus says, This is being fulfilled in me. And it's interesting in... Theologians have argued about it and debated about it for centuries. See, the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't quote the whole text. In Isaiah 61, there's another line. There's another sentence that Jesus omits. So at the very end of this quotation in Isaiah 61, Isaiah goes on to say, "...and bring about the day of the vengeance of the Lord." But whenever Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4, he puts a full stop after this is the day of God's salvation. And he omits the last part of Isaiah 61. And it's not because Jesus isn't into judgment. Or it isn't about the fact that judgment won't come one day upon those who live in rebellion against God. But what Jesus was saying is, that in this era, this is the day of salvation. This is the day of grace. This is the day when I want every single man and woman in Jerusalem, in Judea at that time, and throughout our world today, to know that God so loves them. That's the reason I came into the world, to die on a cross so that through grace and mercy they might find redemption and enter into new life with him. And it seems that on one hand, John was perhaps struggling with that emphasis. And Jesus was saying, no, this is who I am. This is the message that I bring. A message of love and grace and mercy. And I suppose I want to remind you, almost at the start of the summer or at the end of the summer, who knows, that the Christ that we worship is a Christ who loves this world. Even in the midst of the mess of this community, even in the midst of the sinful behavior that abounds in this community, one day we will face the judgment of God. But we live in the day of salvation. We live in a day of grace. And our priority is to reach out with that message of good news that in Christ, through his love, as a result of his grace, because of his mercy, men and women can come to know him and live in relationship with him. That is the Christ that we love. That is the Christ that we serve. But Jesus then goes on to say something, I think, even more profound. After John's messengers left, um, Jesus now speaks to the crowd and he tries to reaffirm uh, John. He says, Why did you go out in the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? In other words, did you go out into the desert to listen to John because he was a weak-willed man with nothing to say? Of course not. Don't talk rubbish. So why did you go out into the desert to listen to John? Was it because he had some celebrity status? So he says, if not, why did you go out? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are on palaces. That's not the reason you went out to see John. So why did you go out? You went out because you realized that he was a prophet. And I tell you, he was more than a prophet. And then he says something very profound about John. He says, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare the way before you. Jesus now affirms John as, as the prophet almost par excellence. The prophet who would be the forerunner of Jesus. And then he says the most amazing thing about John. He says, I tell you, among people born of women, that is, everyone, there is no one greater than John. Jesus was saying, look, don't get me wrong here. You think about Abraham and John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greater. You think about King David and John the Baptist. John was the greater. You think about Moses and John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greater. That's what Jesus says. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. John was an outstanding prophet of God. There was no one better. And if that's shocking, look at the next verse. This is ridiculous. He says, yet, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Like, that's crazy stuff, isn't it? Jesus is saying, John, there is no one greater than him born of a woman. Moses, Abraham, David, you name them all. There's no one greater than John. And then he turns to his fledgling disciples and he says, even those who are the lowest in the kingdom are greater than John. So Jesus is saying, look, John is greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than all of these great heroes of our faith. But he would point to crazy people like you and me and say, but actually, you're greater than John. <laughs> Why? Why is that? So he goes on to explain. You see... Secondly I want to encourage you to remember this morning that you you I want to include myself in that that we are part of the bride of Christ. You see we need to remember who we are as followers of Jesus. John was indeed the greatest of the prophets but he was the best man. We are the bride. That's why Jesus is able to say, John was brilliant, like he was my best man. But you guys are my bride. And that's exactly how John puts it himself in John chapter 3. So John the Baptist is speaking in John 3. And he says, A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, I'm sent ahead of him. This is John speaking. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. But the friend, that is the best man, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. John was saying, look, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the best man. And whenever the bridegroom finally comes to the wedding, I just go, oh, he's turned up. My job is done. I fade into the background and he now becomes the center of attention along with his beautiful bride. And so Jesus says to these fledgling disciples who still don't have a full understanding of who Jesus is or the life of the kingdom into which he is calling them and he says, you guys, you are greater than John. John was my best man but you're the bride. You see, Jesus was saying that the greatest prophet in the era of the Old Testament doesn't come close to the lowest disciple in the new era. Why is that? Because as a result of the coming of Jesus, and I'm now teaching Granny to suck eggs, I got really worried last Sunday or two years ago when I was preaching in Bulgaria and people were interpreting that I was using phrases like that and then the interpreter would look at me and say, "Eh, what does that mean? But you all know what I mean, teaching brand new psychics. So here we have a situation where Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant as a result of his coming into the world, as a result of this new kingdom being brought to bear into our world we are brought into a living, dynamic union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has loved us so much that he came and died for us on a Roman cross. And as a result of us expressing repentance and faith in Jesus, our sin has been dealt with. Our sin has been washed away. And we have been adopted into the family of God. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. And we know that right through the New Testament, right into the book of Revelation, that one day there is going to be this Married Supper of the Lamb, where we, the church, the Bride of Christ, are going to be united eternally with Christ the Bridegroom, and we will serve him and enjoy him forever. The state of the lowest disciple under this new covenant was in many ways greater than the best of those under the old covenant. Can you imagine these people listening to Jesus thinking, Jesus, John might be scratching his head in prison, But like we're scratching our head big time listening to what you're saying. This is crazy stuff, Jesus. You're saying that because of our relationship with you, because we've been adopted into your family, because we're part of your bride and we're going to be united with you forever, that somehow, whoa, we can't even begin to comprehend that. That you love us so much. That the relationship we have with you is so deep. We are in Christ. We are his and he is ours. We cannot comprehend the depth of the union that we experience in him. So are those crazy verses? I tell you, among anyone born of women, there is no one greater than John. (laughs) But... Jillian Jack Gordon Davy, you're greater than John. Why? Because you have a status in God's eyes, and you have privileges that only john could dream of of knowing the love of christ firsthand and the depth of your relationship with him anyway i I need to rush on so I, i want to encourage you this morning just to remind you that this christ that we serve is a christ who is a christ of grace But then as we understand this relationship with Christ, we discover that from his perspective, we are his bride. We are his beautiful bride. I know we don't look like it. I know we don't feel like it at times. But from his perspective, one day we'll be united with him in love forever. And then John goes on to, or Jesus goes on to finish here in verse twenty-nine. And this is what he says. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they hadn't been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say you guys just irritate me. Like you're just so frustrating. Jesus says, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are you like? That's what Jesus says. Like, what are you like? Talking about those who refuse to accept his message. What are you guys like? And then he tells them exactly what they're like. He says, you're like little kids. Sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. So here's where kids, in the street, in the marketplace. They said, okay, let's play weddings. So one wee kid says, okay, I'll play the pipe. And one wee kid says, okay, I'll be the groom. Some wee girl says, I want to be his bride. Another wee girl says, no, I'm not playing unless I'm his bride so she sits and folds her arms and says I'm not playing anymore oh it says okay let's not play weddings anymore let's play funerals so he has this impression of all these kids playing funerals in the street we sang a dirge and, and all the kids were imitating <laughs> oh so sad but all the wee kids say I'm not playing that it's not a very fun game I'm not playing anymore taking my coffin home with me or whatever. And so Jesus says, Do you know, that's what some of you guys are like. He says you're like spoiled brats, like little children playing in the playground and because everything isn't going your way and everything you hear isn't in accord with what you would wish it to be, you decided you're going to take your ball home and you're not going to play anymore. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you said he's a demon. Jesus was the opposite. He came eating and drinking and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. But wisdom is proved right by her children. And so I want to encourage you this morning almost finally to join in the work of the kingdom. You see here some people refuse to join in. And uh, he just said you're like spoiled kids. I want you to watch a little video just for 15 seconds. Um, This is from Isaacovo Baptist Church in Bulgaria that I was at a couple of weeks ago, one of our partner churches. And I'm hoping we might be able to get it. Mother oh, Abraham, yeah, okay. And uh, anyway, I sort of did a wee video of that. And, uh, and then I put it on WhatsApp to send to Heather. And as soon as she came back, do you know what she said? She said, I hope you joined in. <laughs> and I said, I wasn't meant to join in. Because it was like the children doing a little presentation on the last Sunday of proper Sunday school when they, before they got all their little prizes. So it was like they were doing their little performance. And then I could almost hear her saying, even if you were meant to join in, you wouldn't have done it anyway. (laughs) And that's probably true. And really that's what this story finishes up with. Here Jesus has got this wonderful message of grace and mercy. And he says to these disciples, do you know, by accepting this message and becoming my disciple. You can not only walk in the steps of John, in one sense you are even greater than he is. So is there anything more fulfilling, anything more exhilarating, anything more wonderful than getting involved in the work of the kingdom? And I was thinking about that. Do you know, I just wonder sometimes, God says, David, uh, I want you to serve me in this way. Or he says to us at church, I want you to be involved in this way. Or maybe he says to you as an individual. Do you know, there's nothing more exciting, more exhilarating, more fulfilling in the whole of the world than to recognize the wonderful message of Jesus, to realize who we are in Christ, and then to say, I'm going to sign up. And, but I wonder if someone was this morning, like just... <sighs> like those kids sitting in the marketplace saying, "No, I don't like everything that, do you know, or even this church isn't all that I would like it to be, and I go and grump and sit and fold my arms and saying, oh, I'm not joining in. Like guys, what I want to say is this morning. Jesus is the most wonderful person in the whole world. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He has bestowed upon us the message of good news, a message of hope for the world in which we live. And he says, you guys are my bride. In my eyes, you're beautiful. I know sometimes you're messed up, but you're beautiful, and I love you. So come and be part of what I'm doing. Don't sit on the side and fold your arms and become grumpy and say, or even get sidetracked and think, I think there's something more important. What I want you to think about this summer is, you know, come the autumn, I just want to get off my backside. Come and join in what God is doing. God is doing some great stuff in this church. God is doing some good stuff in our community. God is doing some great stuff in our world. Hey, let's be part of it. Because there's nothing more exciting, more exhilarating than doing just that. So I'm going to pray and the band are going to come up and lead us in two closing songs of response as well. You guys want to come on up and we're just going to pray for a moment. God, I find this passage quite confusing at times difficult fully to understand that whole dynamic between John and Jesus and what was going on in John's mind and so on. But thank you that the Lord Jesus and that message of salvation, that message of hope for our world is just something so sublime so wonderful. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the era of grace. And Lord, it's crazy to think that you think like we are the bee's knees. Because we know that In so many ways, we disappoint. In so many ways, we sin. In so many ways, we do rubbish stuff. And yet, you're preparing a banquet. And one day, we as your bride will be presented pure and holy and perfect to you, our bridegroom. Father, how you hold us in such honor how you hold us in such a claim, it, 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 it just drives us. We, we can't grasp it. To realize that you are in love with us, that we are in love with you, we are in Christ. We have just a, an amazing relationship with you that at one time we thought was impossible, but it's incredible. And so, God, in spite of all the imperfections of church and spite of all the stuff that perhaps we're unsure about, help us not to take our ball home and not join in. Help us to realize that being part of your kingdom is the most wonderful, rewarding, fulfilling. There's nothing more we can do better than to be involved in your stuff. So help us not to sit on our hands, not us sit with our arms folded and say we're not joining in. But help us because of who you are. And because of who we are in your eyes. To do what we can. To make your kingdom come. In Jesus name. Amen. So let's stand guys as we sing together.